The um, reading is from Revelation, the last book of the Bible, chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favour. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Linda, very much. Good morning, everybody. If I can add my own welcome to that that Ruth and Adam have given. My name is Jonathan G. I'm the vicar here. If you're a visitor here this morning, part of Matthew's fan club, you are particularly welcome, uh, and anyone else. We are looking at seven letters from the risen Lord Jesus to uh, seven churches, uh, the whole church. And we're seeing, we're asking God to speak through them afresh to our church. So let's just, would you pray with me that that will happen? Lord Jesus, we praise you that you are risen from the dead and ascended and glorified, speaking to your church. We pray that you would send your spirit on us afresh this morning, on me as I speak, on us as we listen. Speak through your words all those years ago to those churches of old. Speak afresh today. Encourage us about what's good. Challenge us where we need to pay attention. Give us grace to... Do what you command. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. Uh, the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, uh, revealed by the risen Lord Jesus in a vision to the Apostle John as an old man in exile. Terrible persecution of the Christians going on around the Roman Empire. He is in exile on the island of Patmos. And he sees a vision of Jesus risen, ascended and glorified. We looked at this last week. And the risen Jesus tells him uh, to write these words and send them to the seven churches which are named. We have a map of the seven churches. The island of Patmos is there uh, with the black splodge, not far away from sort of Kos and Rhodes where you may have been on holiday, not so many to Patmos. Ephesus, the church we're looking at together, is there number one. And then the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia and Laodicea, are in a sort of arc as the postman would deliver them, one after another after another. There would be a long post round. There are a few miles between them. Uh, some of you may have been there. We've been to Turkey a couple of times and have visited Ephesus, perhaps the best preserved of those ancient cities. But for some of them, there's not much left. For some, there's quite a lot to see. 
Jesus is speaking to his whole church. The, the sense of numbers are very significant in Revelation, and seven has always had a sense of completeness. We still use that today. We talk about sailing the seven seas, as if you sail all around the world. This is a letter from Jesus to his whole church. Specific things to specific individual churches of the time, but it's still a letter from Jesus to us today. Uh, we'll be looking at these seven letters over the next few weeks. If you're not going to be here for various reasons or you want them all at once, Andrew Dow, a former vicar of this church, is speaking about all these seven letters at an event the Weller putting on that's actually here on Saturday. So you can get the whole thing in one day if you like. Uh, or you can come week by week or both. That's fine. Uh, this is Jesus, the risen Jesus, speaking to his church. Jesus is not only speaking to his church, he makes it very clear he is standing with his church in a terrible time of persecution. Towards the end of the first century, you will know, no doubt, of the terrible persecution under Nero in Rome, when Nero burnt Rome down and then blamed the Christians and persecuted them terribly. That persecution under the emperor Domitian at the end of the first century is now spread right the way around the empire. Domitian demanded that everybody worship him as Lord and God. If you wouldn't burn incense to him, you would be persecuted, your livelihood might be ended, you could be killed or, in John's case, sent into exile. And it must have felt to many of the Christians then that the Lord Jesus had left them and abandoned them. And this vision that he gives to John shows very clearly that he is with them, standing with them in the midst of this terrible time. And that may be a word to one or other of you here today who are just facing a whole lot of difficult things. That God says, lift your eyes and look to Jesus. He is there. Let me just read to you again a few words from uh, this amazing vision of the risen Jesus we looked at last week. This is chapter 1, verses 12 to 16. Uh, this is the elderly apostle John who was worshipping the Lord on the Lord's day and he said this. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. That's an overwhelming picture of Jesus, full of light, shining. Uh, and this picture of him walking among lampstands and holding stars reinforces this picture of light. In verse 20 of chapter 1, uh, Jesus reveals to John that the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. The angel of the church, a kind of personification of the character of each church. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. However you see that imagery, it's clear it's full of light. The idea is that we as God's church are filled with his light. He shines his light, we reflect it. When we were praying earlier this morning, someone had a picture of, uh, as, as it were, having a mirror. And you, if you've got a mirror and the sun's shining, you can do all sorts of things positively or negatively with, the, with that light. The idea is that we reflect it. Uh, Jesus longs that his church reflects his light to the world around. So here is a vision of Jesus speaking to his church and standing with his church. 
Uh, a bit more than that, he's searching through his church. His concern is that the church reflects his character. So each church, the letter is written, there are things that are good that the risen Jesus praises, there are things that are not good that need attention. For most, there's a mix between the two. One of them, it's just all good and there's no criticism. One of them, it's all bad and there's nothing positive and it's a real wake-up call. I imagine for us here at St Paul's there'll be a bit of both that we recognise, ah yes, that is good and uh, that needs attention. The churches of the day were not only facing persecution as many of our Christian brothers and sisters do around the world. It was really good Adam led in prayer for those earlier. And just as an aside, we're partnering with Open Doors that... A mission agency that is working with the persecuted church and in two weeks time uh, as open doors come there's a lunch if you want to find out more do sign up for that just a quick advert for that uh, but as well as that the churches are facing all the things we face heresy immorality the, the world coming and letting its values take over and Jesus is searching through his church he knows everything about us uh, sometimes that's encouraging, sometimes it's not. If you knew everything about me that God knew, you probably wouldn't want me to be your vicar anymore. Mind you, if I knew everything about you that God knows, I might not want to be your vicar. <laughs> so that's a, the, the grace is that God knows we are weak, we're not perfect, and he loves us, and he wants to fill us with his spirit and use us, but he definitely wants us to become more like him. Uh, the overwhelming sense, though, for the church hearing this and reading this as John sent it round was that Jesus was strengthening his church. I find it almost incredible that the early church survived that terrible persecution in the first century. But it did survive, and it always has ever since. One historian wrote this, the final doom of Christianity has been prophesied so often it's no longer interesting. And there's people who've prophesied it in our day and age, as we know. G.K. Chesterton put it best, as he often does. He said this, Five times in the history of Europe, we've been told the church has gone to the dogs. But each time, it was the dog that died. I like that. In our own day and age, there's this, been this onslaught against the church from militant atheism. I love the fact there's these genexis meetings of leading world scientists explaining the evidence that points to a creator God. Just quietly getting on with it. Uh, Jesus is strengthening his church now as he always has. But he invites us as his church to lift up our eyes above all the stuff that's going on and look to him. And when we do that, there's a tremendous reward promised. Verse 7 at the end of our letter, the verse after Linda finished. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. This is a wonderful promise. Uh, and in the light of that, who is Caesar? I love the fact that um, we call our children after the apostles John and Matthew and James, and we call our dogs Caesar and Nero and things like that. I, I like that. Uh, the early church would have been encouraged to know that, maybe a little surprised as well. So let's look at this first letter. Uh, the letter to the church in Ephesus, if we could put the map up again, just to remind. Here is the first letter, Ephesus on the coast there, where the number one is. The jewel of Asia, in many ways a gateway to Asia. Uh, a massive harbour, 
a 70-foot-wide marble highway leading down to the harbour, a great amphitheatre, three-storey library of Celsus there, and the huge temple to Diana of the Ephesians, Artemis of the Ephesians, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. A wealthy city, uh, a very impressive city, and a city rife with immorality. The Diana religion was fueled by sacred prostitutes, and prostitution was the game of the temple there. Sexual immorality rife in the city, as it, did, as it is indeed in our day. Paul visited there briefly, saw it was so strategic, he came back and was based there for nearly three years. You can read about this in Acts chapter 19. In the hot heat of the lunch, when everyone's having a siesta, he hired the Hall of Tyrannus. And for a couple of hours, every lunchtime, for over two years, he taught about Jesus to the point where the whole province is said to have heard. Uh, people would have come to Ephesus from all around. And if you went there in the heat of the day, you might say, well, let's get out of the heat. Let's go and hear this chap Paul and hear what he's about. And the church grew. Many people turned to Jesus. Uh, we read in Acts 19 of a whole load of them who, who repented of their occult magic arts and had a big burning of all the documents uh, of the occult. In today's terms, over five million pounds worth of stuff was burnt as the church grew. There was a bit of a backlash against that. The silversmiths who sold lots of little models of Diana and the temple, and, uh, they were losing their business and they started a riot there in the amphitheatre and Paul had to be rescued and move on. You read all about it in Acts chapter 19. But here was a church uh, where Paul had really invested himself more than anywhere else. He would taught them. He had warned them when he left that heretics would come in and they had to be on their guard against that. A great church. And now here we are, 50 years, 40 years maybe later, certainly a generation or more. And the risen Jesus is speaking to the church. Paul had left Timothy as the bishop of the church and after him the apostle John himself. So what does the risen Jesus see of this church? Well, let's go back to the letter. Uh, Ephesians 2 Verses 1 to 3. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. I know that you have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Those are tremendous commendations from the risen Jesus to his church. Verse 2, their hard work. Uh, these Christians were very involved there. They were nursing the sick, they were teaching the young, they were mending things and caring for people. And Jesus noticed. Now you may be well involved in a, one of the ministries of this church or somewhere else. Sometimes you wonder if anyone notices, and the risen Jesus says he notices, and he appreciates your service. Indeed, he longs that all his people would serve. Jesus himself came as a servant. Famously in Mark 10:45, he said that he didn't come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So all true followers of Jesus look to serve in different ways. And Jesus appreciates their service, their hard work. He appreciates their perseverance. We go to verses 2 and 3. Uh, you've persevered and have endured hardships in my name and have not grown weary. 
It really was very difficult to be a Christian in those days. The persecution was terrible. And they had not caved in. Some churches did compromise. Not in Ephesus. They'd been well taught by Paul and they stood firm. Uh, They've held firm to what is true. In verse 2, they've tested the claims of false apostles. In verse 6, we read, you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, we'll meet the Nicolaitans again in two weeks' time, but it seems there was some heresy that led into sexual immorality that would have fitted in very easily into Ephesus with the Diana cult around. We don't know precisely what it was, and we'll meet it again in two weeks' time. But the church in Ephesus was not having any of it. Their doctrine was sound. They stayed a court firm on the truth. They were not immoral. And indeed, a few years later, at the beginning of the second century, Bishop Ignatius of Antioch wrote to the church of Ephesus saying, you all live according to the truth and no heresy has a home among you. So the Lord Jesus was really pleased with these things. It sounds like a great church. They're working hard. Their doctrine is sound. They're persevering. But there's one devastating criticism. Verse four. The risen Jesus says, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. What Jesus most wants from us is a love relationship with him. He died for us to be in relationship with him, restored, not just for us to lead good moral lives. Right at the heart of Christianity is a love relationship. We're caught up at the heart of the universe. We have God, Father, Son and Spirit in an eternal love relationship and we're caught up into that. But the church in Ephesus, like a marriage which was where there's no unfaithfulness, Uh, couples are behaving well but the love's grown cold or like the older brother in the story of the prodigal son he's never left home always done what his father asked but there's a distance with the father this church in Ephesus was just growing cool in their love for Jesus and it's all too easy as we go on as Christians and we get busy for the busyness to take over from the relationship Plenty of churches who believe the right things, do the right things, but have lost the love for the Lord. Uh, When I was a student, uh, a wonderful Christian leader called David Watson came to lead a mission at the university where I was in the first year. He was and his team were brilliant. Uh, If you're an old Christian, you will remember David Watson from the 70s and the 80s. Uh, He led renewal in the Church of England, my sort of dad's generation. I was very impacted when he got cancer and died in his 50s uh, because he had made such an impact on me when I was just 18, 19. Uh, And he wrote this, he wrote a a sort of a a book cataloguing his experience with the illness as he approached death called Fear No Evil, uh, that from Psalm 23 actually, which Adam led us in earlier, that when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we need fear no evil for you are with me. And he wrote this, God showed me that all my preaching, writing and other ministry was absolutely nothing compared to my love relationship with him. In fact, my sheer busyness had squeezed out the close intimacy I had once known. Now, God has had to speak to me several times down the years through this letter about not letting my busyness for him and his kingdom take over from my love relationship with him been a constant tension and I won't be the only one in the room 
Uh, you will know that over the last few years, in order to give attention to that, Juliet and I did a sort of Ignatian prayer journey, really giving out time to being with the Lord on our sabbatical. The emphasis was on our relationship with the Lord and each other rather than uh, learning too much. We obviously learned a certain amount, uh, which we hope will be helpful. But nothing is more important than this, that we keep the love uh, for the Lord that he has for us. That famous chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, without love, all our deeds and all the good things we do are just noisy gongs and clanging cymbals. Uh, if you focus on pure truth doctrine and pure morality but not love for the Lord, you wind up like the Pharisees. They had good doctrine. They were good people and moral people but their hearts were cold to the Lord. And the Lord longs that it's both and. He longs that a church does stuff that serves him, stays firm to the truth, resists immorality, perseveres, but above all, that it loves. So if you find God speaking to you through this letter, as many of us will, and if as a church we need to give attention to make sure that our busyness doesn't detract from our love relationship with the Lord, they need to go together, what can we do about it? Well, the risen Lord Jesus in verse 5 is very practical. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. What a warning. There are plenty of churches that used to be thriving that are now carpet warehouses or Airbnbs that have gone. When the love goes, the lampstand will eventually go as well. Three things particularly. The word consider could be translated remember. Remember where you were. Memory is a very precious gift. Uh, every Christmas, I write a Christmas letter, which we send out. We started this long before Facebook ever came. So it was the annual Facebook update with a few photos to our friends. Uh, I still haven't got Facebook, so it's still my annual update. Uh, I do spy on people through Juliet's Facebook, just so you're aware. I can see people. But this letter is good. It's it's a good way of communicating, but primarily we do it as our family archive. My rules are one side of A4 uh, and the highlights of the year and to gently poke fun at every member of the family. It's not really a list of achievements. It's a, a little bit of good-natured humour. And it's become, over the last 30 years, the most wonderful archive. But I find, as I approach Christmas, the weight of having to write this descends. I'm busy and Christmas at church is busy and I'm tired. Oh, I could do without that. And as I look back and see the photos of the year, I remember all the good things. And it does me good. Now, this is what the risen Lord Jesus says we should do in our relationship with him. Think back to when you first came to living faith in Jesus. It may be you grew up as a cradle Christian as I did and your faith came alive at a point, as mine did as an undergraduate. It may be you weren't a Christian and you were converted at some point. Remember that honeymoon period. You're full of love for the Lord. You know he loves you. You're full of thanks. Remember those times. Remember times when God's answered your prayers, when he's been faithful. Remember them. As the old song has it, count your blessings. Name them one by one and it will surprise you what the Lord has done, was the old bit of doggerel we used to sing ages ago. Thanksgiving will fuel a love relationship not taking God for granted. Remember. Secondly, repent. Repent means to change your mind. Two things we need to change our mind about. One, what matters most, what we do 
or our love relationship. Jesus says the love relationship with him matters more than what we do. Obviously, if we love the Lord, we will do stuff for him. That's it's almost impossible to love the Lord and not get involved in his service. But it's terribly easy to do things for him and not love him. And Jesus says, if that's the case, you may wind up so far away you're gone. The love relationship, you need to change your mind. But you may need to change your mind about something else as well. And that may be what you believe about God. About 20 years ago, the Lord showed me there was something I believed about him that wasn't true, that was getting in the way of my relationship with him. In fact, it led me to not want to spend as much time with him as I possibly should. And I preferred, if I'm honest, doing ministry to my time with the Lord. Uh, And what he showed me was this. I was very fortunate to have a good, godly Christian dad uh, who pointed me to God. The problem with that is that dad was not God. And there were things that were wrong with dad, as there are with all of us, that I had subconsciously transferred onto God. Others of you who are less fortunate in your dads may have had less good dads and you may just know God's different. My problem was I equated God to being too much the same. And there was one incident from when I was 10 or 11, uh, maybe 12, that sort of age, that God reminded me about, about 20 years ago. Uh, My school report had come. I was a bright boy, and Dad knew that, and I was a bit careless, as a lot of bright boys are. And he rightly wanted to encourage me to do my work properly and not be careless. It's just the way he did it wasn't helpful. He said, Jonathan, I'm sure you've got a good report. I want to give you five pounds for your report, which is a lot of money all those years ago. But we're just going to look through it, and each time it mentions careless, we'll knock 50p off. And I have this excruciating memory of sitting with my dad as the pages were turned for what was really a pretty good report, knocking 50p's off. And the Lord showed me I tended to think that about him, that I believed God was basically pleased with me, but actually he was going through knocking 50p's off. I didn't want to spend the time with him. Why would you? I'd rather go out and do the stuff. And when I realized that, I had to repent of believing a falsehood about God. God is not looking down on you, knocking 50p's off. That's the evil one who will bring us down. What the Lord does is point out something that needs attention. So if Dad had said... Um, that was a really good report, Jonathan. Well done. I want to give you five pounds. There are a few mentions of careless. Next time, uh, if you can get a report without the word careless, it'll be ten. That would have been brilliant. I would have thought, all oh, right, let's do it. And let's look through the report. I would have been eager. That would have been encouraging. Uh, so I repented of that and are deliberately learning to spend time with the Lord more because he loves me as he loves you. That is the truth. And it may be you believe something about God that is not true, like he's a big policeman in the sky saying no. Or he doesn't even notice you. Those are both lies. He loves you. And he, want, he wants time with you. And it's a delight. As we, it's a delight to worship the Lord together, to spend time with him. Uh, so we need to get our thinking straight here and repent, change our minds. And then to do the things we did at first. Well, what would they be? We would have worshipped. We would have read our Bibles and pray. We would have got involved in serving. We would have spent time with the Lord's people as top priority. Uh, I remember not just not being able to get enough of this. That's, in order to get our love back, it takes time. All relationships take time. You'll never improve any of your relationships unless you give them time. So it is true with God. And now we don't earn his love. 
it's there. We, it's more than, there's nothing we can do to make him love us more. There's nothing we can do to make him love us less. Our love is a reflection of his love. As the Apostle John wrote in his first letter, 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. So we need to meditate on his love. When the New Testament wants to tell us about God's power, uh, it points us to the resurrection. When it wants to point us to the love of God, it points us to the cross. This is how much Jesus loves us, that he died for us. And all the way through the Bible are words that tell us to wait on the Lord, to be still before him. There's something about waiting and being still. You know when you love someone, you can sit still together and it be a peaceful companionableness. It's that with the Lord is what we're aiming for. So every day, please take time to read a bit of the scriptures, to ask God to speak to you, to commit the day to the Lord, to reflect back on the last day, to pray for people, and just to be still. Don't rush in and rush out. So we were praying before the service, someone who didn't know exactly what I was preaching on, said, God is in the waiting. And if you want to recapture your love for him, then it needs time. It's time above everything else. The commandments say there to be no idols. Nothing is more important than this. Not our job, not our family, not our hobby, not anything else. We must love God first. Uh, and if we do, the rewards are extraordinary. It's not easy, but it is wonderful. Uh, I'm going to stop there. Perhaps our band could come back. And uh, we're going to sing a song in a moment that meditates on his love for us. This is the right way to do it. Don't look too much inwardly at your love for the Lord, because we'll all feel a bit bad about that. Uh, that's a bit like pulling up plants and looking at their roots to see how they're doing. It doesn't usually help the plant very much and stuffing them back in. Uh, the best thing for plants is to water them, make sure the sun can get at them, don't let the bugs or the animals near them too much, then they'll be fine. We meditate on his love for us. So here is a song that speaks of his love for us. Uh, and I want to encourage you just to... Uh, go with it and ask the Lord to rekindle your love for him. So would you stand and I'll lead in a prayer. Not going to ask anybody to come forward for prayer. We're just, we all need this. And then after the service, if you'd like prayer, there'll be an opportunity. But Lord Jesus, we stand in your presence and we praise you that your love for us is greater than we can possibly imagine. Praise you that you left the glory of heaven to reveal the love of the Father for us, to die on the cross for our sins, to make it possible for us to be washed clean, as we thought about with Matthew's baptism today. Pour your spirit on us now. We dare to pray that if there's one particular thing you want to put your finger on, that you would do that. Is it a lie we've believed about you as I had? Is there an idol, a hobby, a person, a job, something that's got between us and you? Would you just convict us of that? Whatever it is, Lord. One or two of you may be feeling completely useless and hopeless. If that's the case, that is not God, that's the evil one. So we speak against that voice, we don't want to hear that. He's trying to bring us down. It's God who convicts in order to restore so Lord, give us grace to deal with whatever you put your finger on. For those of us who are too busy doing more than you're calling us to do, give us grace to cut one of those things out to give time for you. For those of us who've given our energies to other things and not really serving your kingdom, help us to love you 
and use our energies in your service. Praise you that your kingdom will last for all eternity. So may this church increasingly love you and become more like you and point people to you. May we be a lampstand that shines with your light and come and minister to us even as we sing. And we ask it all in your name. Amen.